Let's talk about nonfiction books on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. We've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer questions about science, faith, and life. I'm your host, Mike McArg, and this week, we're not going to answer questions at all, but instead, talk about six of my favorite recent nonfiction books. After the response to last week's show on fiction books, I thought this would be a good follow-up, so what do you say? Let's get it started. As I mentioned last week, uh, you all seem to enjoy it when I talk about books. <laughs> and uh, when I've done book review shows in the past, they've been very popular because I understand many of your readers and like me, you're always trying to figure out what book to read next. Um, and I also understand that some of you would like me to go really deep in book reviews. I don't know if I can do that. So I haven't gone quite as you know shotgun pattern with this episode as I've done previous book shows. I've gone a little deeper. But I don't know if I can do like a you know a twenty minute segment on one book without basically summarizing and ruining the book. So um, I'm not a a book reviewer. That's not my specialty. This is just a way to share things I'm reading that I've enjoyed. In case you'd like to read uh, some similar works, that's it. Uh, so we'll start off this episode with a book that I particularly enjoyed, uh, which is called The Tao of Bill Murray, real-life stories of joy, enlightenment, and party crashing. For a long time, I've been a fan of a meme on the internet, which is called No One Will Ever Believe You, and that meme is about Bill Murray showing up in random scenes and circumstances and doing something unbelievable, uh, like washing someone's dishes at a party or making someone a drink at a bar, uh, you know, all, all kinds of stories. And then Bill Murray completes that by saying, you know, no one will ever believe you. Meaning when you tell the story, no one will believe I was here. And no one ever believe you isn't real. But the situations that no one will ever believe you comes from are based on real stories of Bill Murray showing up in completely strange, bizarre, and random circumstances. Um which is fascinating in and of itself. This like incredibly well-known A-list comedian just showing up at parties and at people's houses uh, and dinner parties. Really, really strange stuff and wonderful. But what's fascinating to me is the way that uh, these stories come together to describe a worldview and a way of living and a way of understanding life that frankly, I really identify with and appreciate. So if you're looking for something that's fun, something that's encouraging, while still offering some depth, uh, I think the Tao of Bill Murray is an absolutely fantastic choice. If you've been listening to me for some time, then you know I'm friends with uh, comedian Pete Holmes. And actually that uh, a huge reason why I'm a a known person at all, why I have this career, was very early in my arc. I was a guest on Pete Holmes' You Made It Weird podcast, which I was a strange choice 
because up to that point, he'd only had on uh, professional actors and comedians and writers plus Rob Bell. <laughs> uh, and so I think I was technically the first Friends of Rob Bell uh, guest on the show. But oddly enough, uh, it wasn't labeled as such because Pete hadn't turned that into a series yet. So uh, I am also friends with Rob Bell, but whatever. That's not what this podcast is about. All I'm saying is Pete is a good friend. What you probably know about Pete uh, is that he is hilarious and that he is thoughtful and that he is honest and that he is vulnerable in a way that few people are, at least on stage. Uh, being friends with Pete, I just want to tell you that's also true in person. He is one of the most kind, most thoughtful, and most sincere people that I have ever met. Uh, he's a truly extraordinary person. Uh, and Pete has just released a book, and that book is called Comedy Sex God. <laughs> uh, you know, here's what I would tell you about Comedy Sex God. Uh, one, it is hilarious. And there's books that'll make you chuckle occasionally. This is not that book. This book is laugh out loud funny constantly. Uh, I don't recall the last time I read a book that made me laugh as much as this one. And as someone who writes and someone who uh, works on stage as well, it is very hard to make people laugh in writing. It is much easier to make people laugh on stage with timing and body language and your tone of voice and your inflection. You have all these tools on stage to make people laugh. When it's a book, it's completely down to how clever the idea is and how funny the actual words are. And uh, Comedy Sex God is hilarious, but it is also touching. Uh, and it is also honest, again, in a way that few books are. Um, I don't really think of Pete Holmes as a comedian so much anymore. I think of him as a a philosopher and as a theologian, and in those capacities, he is my favorite philosopher and my favorite theologian. Um, and for people who listen to Ask Science Mike, so many of us have backgrounds in religious fundamentalism or recovering from religious and spiritual trauma, and Pete writes about those experiences in a way that is honest and beautiful and true and frighteningly <laughs> vulnerable. I mean, it's incredible. Plus, when was the last time you read a book that had an endorsement from Ram Dass and Silver Sarah Silverman and Conan O'Brien and Richard Rohr? Uh, and I think that like intersection of people uh, honestly describes Pete really well. Uh, I absolutely loved this book. It made me laugh, yes. It also made me cry. And it made me think about my own life in different ways. So if you are interested in those kind of things, check it out. Also, if you're wondering about my friend Michael Gunger's whole arc with Ram Dass and you're excited by that or confused by it, this is going to be a really helpful book because Pete talks about his own experiences with Ram Dass. Uh, now, I don't have any experiences with Ram Dass other than reading some of his books and listening to some of his lectures. I think he's fascinating, although I don't have the same. Um, he's not as influential figure in my life as he is in Michael or Pete's lives. Uh, but I think Pete does a great job of explaining why Ram Dass is so meaningful to so many people. So uh, if you've got time, heck, if you don't have time, 
check out Comedy Sex God, available both as a hardback and as an audiobook. All right, now let's talk about a couple of science books that I've enjoyed recently. And I'm, I'm going to go a little deeper into my uh, bench here. I'm not, these aren't obvious science books. Uh, they go a little deeper conceptually, topically, but not necessarily that means they're hard to read. They're just fascinating takes on something. So this book uh, first is called Other Minds, The Octopus, The Sea, and the deep origins of consciousness. Uh, when we study consciousness, we tend to think about the branches of the evolutionary tree that led to us. We compare our brains to other mammalian brains or even sometimes to bird brains, and there's some really interesting differences in the architecture of human brains and bird brains, for example. There are some species of bird whose brains are more uh, intricate, more dense neurally than ours are. Uh, they're just smaller. Uh, but ultimately, bird brains and human brains and monkey brains and elephant brains and dolphin brains, they have a lot in common. They're the same basic architecture of a large central nervous system that we call a brain uh, that then branches out into the body uh, where most intelligence is generated in the brain itself, uh, which is why the octopus is such a fascinating animal. We're learning more and more that uh, octopi are extraordinarily intelligent animals uh, and that their intelligence, or at least their manifestation of intelligence, is primarily uh, limited by their lifespan. Um, but in other minds, we look at how the brains of octopi I actually think it might be octopuses if you're talking about multiple species of octopus. I don't know. I'm not going to uh, die on that hill for sure. Um, but it has, it shows how, you know, they, they came on a separate path in evolution and then arrived at a completely different architecture for intelligence and indeed consciousness. And what that means for how they experience the world and why, you know, octopi and other cephalopods can teach us about the world and about consciousness, primarily because their experiences are so different and so alien to ours. And it's a it's a touching book, you know, it goes it goes uh it talks on the evolutionary path, it talks about some, you know, really good science on uh, studying how their senses work. And then what I found most touching was the parts where it talked about their shorter lifespans and what that means for the way that their lives develop. Um, it's a really, really, really insightful and touching book. Uh, and it, it is, again, very uh, accessible to lay people or people who don't have deep experience with science there's not a lot of jargon in here it's written in common language uh so other minds is one of the more fascinating books i've read this last year and uh, i highly recommend it another science book i've read and enjoyed tremendously was are we smart enough to know how smart animals are by friends to wall uh and oh man what a great book 
we tend to think about intelligence as this ladder with us at the top, like humans are the smartest because we can read and write and make tools. And uh, it's true, in, in our form of intelligence, we are the smartest animal on the planet, but there's not just one type of cognition. So the whole premise of this book is, what if instead of viewing intelligence as a ladder, we view it as a bush where there are different peaks in a broad spectrum of abilities. And that's a better way of looking at intelligence and understanding the animal kingdom uh, because there are so many animals that are smarter than us in their form of thinking. Pigeons are better at spotting art for forgeries than human experts in art history, for example. Um, are we dumb because we can't remember where we bury nuts as well as squirrels do? Do you see what I mean? There are different forms of intelligence. And so this book will look at a lot of different animals, uh, bats and sheep and wasps and whales, dolphins, um, bonobos, of course, crows even, and reveal the incredible intelligence that exists within the animal kingdom. So I think this is a great complement to the last book we discussed, Other Minds, to help start knocking away some of the notions we have of the human mind as some singularly unique uh, manifestation of intelligence in the animal kingdom. It really shows us uh, the brilliance of all living things. I really enjoyed this book as well. It's a little bit longer and heavier than other minds. It is a little goes a little bit more in depth. So it's a, it's both a wider book because it talks about more species, uh, but it's also probably written just ever so slightly, a uh, lot slightly harder read, not significantly harder, but just a slightly harder read than other minds. But a completely fascinating book. Uh, in my next book, I had a lot on animal intelligence uh, in early drafts of the book, but as the book uh, developed, I realized there just wasn't room to follow that digression. But if you're interested in some of the thinking that led to my next book, definitely check out Are We Smart Enough to Know How Smart Animals Are as Well as Other Minds. I've been doing everything I can to read and to understand better the history of race and racism in the United States and across the world. And I've been on that journey because I'm learning more each day how white supremacy impacts people's lives all over the world today. And I know that as I've gone along that journey, I've become much less popular uh, with white men specifically. And I know this because of data measurement and the letters and cards and tweets uh, that I receive from people. Uh, so although my audience has grown and grown considerably over the last few years, that growth has happened with women and people of color and women of color and people uh, of different ability and disability intersections. And I've just become less popular with white men because I've spoken so often about white supremacy and patriarchy. And I've done that in a way that centers and focuses on the voices of marginalized people 
and that brushes up against some of the framing that white men themselves go on as they uh, become more aware of other contexts and other situations. So when we acknowledge the different life experiences of different people, that can brush up against a fundamental idea among well-meaning white men that everyone is equal and everyone's the same and everyone's voice uh, deserves the same attention, which is both true and doesn't happen, right? And uh, so that's where some of the tension comes from. So people have wondered, especially white men, are always asking me for resources. Where can I learn more? Where can I learn more? There's no easy answer to this stuff. Not much less what to do about white supremacy, but even where to learn about it. Uh, there's no easy answer because so many of our resources are written in the frame of white supremacy. Uh, which is why I'm really excited to tell you about this book. It is called Stamped from the Beginning. It's by uh, Ibram X. Kendi, who is a historian. And this book is, let me flip through here. It is, uh, oh, right at 500 pages, a little over 500 pages before you get to its copious notes section. It, so it's a well-documented book. Uh, the subtitle here is The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America. So this book, I, I at this point, if you're going to read one book on race and racism, this is the one I'd recommend. Uh, it is dense. It is academically credible, thoroughly researched, thoroughly referenced, incredibly clear. Uh, it is going to be a tough read for white Christians because it's going to lay out definitively the connection between American Christianity and racism uh, and the role American Christianity has played in the exploitation, persecution, and marginalization of black and brown people in American history. Uh, again, now this is only going to be, this is a very American, America-focused book. Uh, this is not going to contain as much you know, world issues. So for those of you living in the UK or, or Canada, or Australia or Europe, this might not be as helpful unless you want to understand better American racism. But there's, I have never read a book like this. I've read some really fascinating memoirs and biopics that help me understand racism and race in America and across the world. I've read some uh, more narrowly focused historical books. Um, but this reminds me of Karen Armstrong's A History of God, which is this incredibly comprehensive view of <laughs> how humanity has understood God over the millennia. Uh, this book has that much weightiness, only it's concentrated only on American history and on race and racism. I learned so much in reading this book. It reframed so much of things I thought I already knew as I read this book. Uh, it's going to talk about the Great Awakening and the Enlightenment and every major movement in American history. Here's why I recommend this book. Well, there's many reasons I recommend this book. But if you have grown frustrated with me talking about race and racism and issues of identity in America, 
you need to read this. I'm not saying you have to agree with me or you have to agree with anyone, but perhaps a deeper and more nuanced understanding of American history would help you understand at where we are in culture and on Twitter today. Why I talk about you know, the, the necessity of economic reparations for black people and indigenous people in the United States. Uh, why I talk about centering and uh, focusing on voices of marginalized people. Uh, why I think it's important to name white supremacy specifically as something happening now and not something that happened in the past that we've conquered. This book will open your eyes in an incredible way, and it will do so with profound academic credibility. It is called Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America by Ibram X. Kendi, and you can find it in the show notes on AskScienceMike.com for episode 192. A History of God by Karen Armstrong is one of my favorite books of all time um, because it does such a good job of helping us place our own faith tradition in the context of different religions all over the world. Uh, as a storyteller, I think of that book as a lot of different subplots that occasionally merge together into a larger arc. Well, Reza Aslan, who is one of my favorite authors, uh, he wrote a book called Zealot about Jesus of Nazareth. That is an incredible book. Has written a book called God, a Human History. And instead of weaving, you know, this tapestry of occasionally connecting religious stories, as we see in a history of God, uh, Reza is taking human religion and turning it into like a single cohesive narrative and flips the script into us seeing how all religions are an attempt for us to understand the divine, all religions. And uh, what I particularly appreciated, and you'll understand I appreciate this, is the way Rez Aslan talks about the features in the human brain that cause us to seek religion and why that's a great thing but also why that's a troubling thing, why our projection of God onto the world has created such comfort and such chaos in human civilization. Uh, Reza is a, is a very gifted writer. Um, so this book reads very well. It's just, it's well written enough that it brings out my imposter syndrome as a writer. Um, it doesn't read like an academic text, but it does contain really thoughtful scholarship because uh, unlike me, who's just a guy that like reads things and writes, uh, Rez Aslan is an actual scholar uh, with original research. And so this book weaves those things together very skillfully so he can present academic scholarly ideas in a way that it is accessible as a story. It reminds me a lot of uh, why I started to get into history in the first place, you know, I dropped out of college uh, very early in. But there's one class I did finish, and only one class that I finished in college, and that was world history. Because there was a professor who wrote a book about world history, and that class consisted of him telling world history 
as a story every day uh, for an hour. And I was enthralled with his storytelling capacity. And Reza Aslan is that kind of scholar, a storytelling scholar. And so what you'll find is as you read this book, your retention is going to be really, really high uh, because everybody can follow along and understand a good story. The only tip-off you'll see that this is definitely uh, a book written by an academic is uh, the bibliography and notes are just about as long as the book itself, <laughs> uh, which is really astounding. You know, when I do notes for a book, if they're five pages, that's a lot. And the, the bibliography and notes for this book are hundreds of pages. So uh, that's your tip off. But that also means that, you know, if you, if you skip the notes, it's a pretty quick read. So it's, it's terrific. Like highest possible recommendation is God, a human history uh, by Reza Aslan. It's terrific and you don't want to miss it. Next week, we'll get back to a normal Ask Science Mike, but I hope you've enjoyed two weeks of books. I'd love to know what you thought about this. You can uh, hit me up on social media or let me know on Patreon, which, by the way, uh, if you want to join our Patreon community, uh, it helps make the show possible. There's a link on AskScienceMike.com for you to be able to do so. Uh, it lets you take control of this program by submitting questions and also choosing what questions make it on the show. Every week, I'd like to thank Caitlin Hermstad for producing Ask Science Mike. I'd like to thank Greg Nordeen for his work in sound design and production, Andrew Golucky in pre-production, and Jeb Botterford for writing the theme song. Everybody, thank you so much for listening, and I can't wait to speak with you next week. Yeah.